This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today, in our 289th episode, we have a bunch of news, including Cannibal Allosaurus, Theropods Running, and a ton of other dinosaur news stories. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Labocania. But really quick, as always, we want to thank some of our patrons who help keep the podcast running and keep our Discord full of all sorts of amazing comments and good discussions about dinosaurs. And this week, we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Taya, Stego Sophie, Ayumi, Paula Canthus, Jackson Crawford, Sorian Brandy, Mayu, Dino Bo, Mellow Stego, Wurgersaurus, Kaylin, Maria Sora, Daniel McGill, Ultra Uncanny, and Tarkia Tamer. And Ultra Uncanny and Tarkia Tamer both just joined. Yay, thank you so much. I recognize a lot of these names from our watch parties on the weekends when we're chatting with you on our Discord, so that's been great. If you want to join in on these watch parties, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. You may have noticed that this episode is being released on a Thursday rather than our usual day of Wednesday, and that's because on Wednesday, June 10th, we joined many publishers and academic institutions to hashtag shutdown STEM, which I think is an incredibly unfortunate hashtag because we obviously support STEM. So the hashtag strike for black lives is probably much more accurate. Right. The cause makes a lot of sense, but the wording is a little bit confusing. Yes. So it's meant to draw attention to how science has been used in the past against black people and how lots of institutions have been involved with this. In paleontology, I think the most notable example is Henry Fairfield Osborne. He was a eugenicist and thereby basically a racist. There wasn't really any way to get around that in the 1900s. And in 1916, while president of the American Museum of Natural History, he wrote the preface for the racial basis of European history, saying that the greatest threat to America is essentially white people mating with what he called the lowest races which is obviously horrible. And his eugenic views and his views of Nordic people being the superior race made its way into the American Museum of Natural History in many ways and also legitimized his racist views by purporting to present it as science. And he literally says in some documents like, this isn't my opinion, I'm not a bigot, this is just science. And it wasn't. (laughs) But it was used to oppress people and... That's why we struck yesterday. 
Yeah, so and Mark Witten, who's a really good and prominent paleo artist, recently published a post on racism in paleo art and called attention to many scientists who were racist and or benefited from oppression of black people. Yeah, it wasn't just Henry Fairfield Osborne. It was very widespread. Yes. So this includes some of the big names in dinosaur paleontology. So in addition to Henry Fairfield Osborne, you've got Edward Drinker Cope. And Cope thought that black people were degenerates. And then, as Garrett mentioned, Osborne used his influence at the AMNH to spread his views. So in one example is he directed Charles Knight, the paleoartist. Charles Knight's views are a little unclear on all of this, but he directed Knight to make racist paleo art, such as the mural in the Hall of Man that was at the AMNH, which is called Neanderthal Flint Workers. And their primitive look was not based on the fossils that were found, but instead on the features of non-white people that Osborne thought were inferior compared to white Europeans. That mural was apparently considered controversial among the staff even when it was made, and then it was eventually removed in the 1960s. And the fact that it lasted until the 1960s, along with a lot of other pieces that Osborne put into that museum, shows you just how long this racist viewpoint was allowed to last. Right, and it still is sometimes used for references by people who might not know the history behind it. Yeah, and so that's the other side of the problem, is even though there have obviously been lots of improvements made, this history is still there, and it has its fingerprints all over a lot of modern work, too, which really sucks. So SVP released a really good statement about how they support Black Lives Matter. That's against Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. Yeah, and so obviously they're making efforts to improve things, but I think it is worth taking a day to recognize that this has been a problem for a very long time, and it certainly didn't end with the end of slavery. It has lasted well into the modern era. Yes, and it does, to some extent, involve dinosaurs. Yes, definitely. Which is why we're bringing it up. (laughs) Yeah, and if you want to learn more, I would recommend checking out Mark Witten's blog post, which is the top link in our news. So now moving on to the regular dinosaur portion of our news. Up first, we have the cannibalistic Allosaurus. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, there's some really metal paleo art that goes along with this. You might have seen it. It was posted in our Discord chat, too. It's by Brian Eng, and it shows three Allosaurus and a Ceratosaurus eating slash fighting over a dead Allosaurus. They all look super gnarly, and it's all like red and black and intense. It's a lot. (laughs) There's also tons of bugs and some pterosaurs flying erratically. So yeah, it's a very chaotic scene. The paleo art is based on a recent paper by Stephanie Drumheller and others published in PLOS One. I wonder if Stephanie Drumheller is somehow related to the Drumheller in Alberta, Canada, (laughs) where the Royal Tyrrell Museum is. I couldn't find it. I think she's American, but it would be pretty funny coincidence if she was. That'd be awesome. It's the only two times I've ever seen that name, so it seems like a weird coincidence. The researchers of this paper were studying the Mygat Moore Quarry, and the Mygat Moore Quarry is in western Colorado. It's about 100 miles south of Dinosaur National Monument, as you'd probably expect. It's Morrison Formation, similar age to Dinosaur National Monument. It's from the late Jurassic, about 152 million years old. And there are tons of fossils known from the area, and teeth and bones and all sorts of stuff. In this study, they just looked at fossils that were bones from dinosaurs and not the teeth or other things. 
but still they had 2,368 fossils to work with. And of those, 684 had at least one theropod bite mark on it, making that 29% of the bones. Wow. So there was a lot of eating happening on these bones. And (laughs) again... Something was hungry. Yeah, because in order to make a tooth mark on bone, it's just like if you imagine eating something today, you don't usually scrape your teeth against bone. Uh, You don't. (laughs) Well, that's true. Sabrina does. (laughs) But even then, you know, unless you're really desperate for every last little morsel, you're not going to leave teeth marks on the bone. You're going to just leave a slight thin film left over or whatever. But if you're really going for every last little bit of nutrition you can get off of the bones, that's when you start to see tons of these tooth marks. The researchers say the, quote, observed bite marks include punctures, scores, furrows, pits, and striations, end quote. So any way that a tooth could possibly mark a bone, it was happening with these bones. Punctures is an intense one, too. Yes. (laughs) But for this paper, the most useful type of tooth mark pattern is the striation. And a striation is caused when the tooth scrapes along the bone rather than sort of against it. So if you imagine you have a serrated knife and normally you'd cut it, moving the serrations back and forth, you know, kind of perpendicular to what you're trying to cut. If you scraped the serrated blade instead along sideways rather than with the serrations, you could leave these sort of scratches on something. And that's what we're seeing with the striation patterns. Sort of looks like raked sand when you look at it up close. The big benefit to these types of tooth marks is that they leave marks with the distance in between each scratch matching the serrations in the teeth. So then you can compare known teeth from the area and see which ones have that pattern of serrations to match these marks on the bone. So it's pretty cool little sort of fingerprint technology. The most common pattern that they found in the quarry actually matched two different dinosaurs. It matched both Allosaurus and Ceratosaurus. They just had the same kind of denticle or serration on the teeth spacing. So we can't tell for sure which one it is. And that's why, obviously, in Brian Eng's art, he put both of them in there. But there's a lot more Allosaurus. So I think <laughs> leading towards the Allosaurus. Allosaurus and Ceratosaurus are also both known from the site, from the bones that have been found there. And they're the two largest theropods that have been found there. So I guess it's not too surprising that they were the ones that got to get the last bites in (laughs) because maybe they scared off some smaller things to get those last bites. But there is one exception. There's one mark that looks like a much larger predator than a typical Allosaurus or Ceratosaurus. They said it's probably a Saurophaganax or Torvosaurus, but it might just be a huge Allosaurus. And depending on who you ask, Saurophaganax is basically a huge Allosaurus. So yeah, some other huge predator was in there (laughs) at least a little bit of the time. And it makes sense because we've seen Saurophaganax and Torvosaurus in other parts of the Morrison Formation, so it wouldn't be surprising to see them there. The interesting thing about the Magat Moor Quarry is that it looks like there was a relatively low sedimentation rate, meaning the soil layers were laid down slowly, as opposed to something like if you imagine a big flood washing in and covering a bunch of dinosaurs and a whole bunch of sediment piling up and leaving these big bone beds of fossils. In this case, it looks like that it was the exact opposite of that. 
there wasn't very much sedimentation happening very quickly, and therefore animals would have been exposed for a really long time before eventually ending up getting buried and then fossilizing in this case, which means that it would have been a really good place to go for scavenging because these bodies aren't getting buried. They're out there open for anything that wants to snack on them. Free meat. Yeah. (laughs) Also in support of the scavenging hypothesis is that a lot of the tooth marks are on the less meaty parts of the body, basically on like the toes and the vertebrae, which are not the first places you'd expect a predator to go for after killing an animal and starting to eat it because there's just not a lot of nutrition in those spots. Another potential hypothesis to sort of counterbalance the cannibalism is that the marks on the bones could have been from combat because we know that when dinosaurs fight each other, they're likely to try to bite each other on the face or maybe on the sides or something to scare each other off. You see it with modern animals all the time. But in this case, the scrape marks on the toes <laughs> don't exactly seem like the kind of things that would happen in a combat. You know, you'd have to have one dinosaur kicking the other one in the mouth and then that one biting it. And then in order to get these scrape marks on the bone, it would basically have to remove the flesh. And that's it's just not really kind of a combat kind of wound. And then Again, with the vertebrae, it's so deep in the muscle and tissue that really the only way you get deep in near the centrum on a vertebrae is if you're eating it. Hmm. It's not, it doesn't really make sense as a combat wound. As a result, this is probably the first evidence of cannibalism in Allosaurus. I was kind of surprised because I know it's been proposed that maybe Cleveland Lloyd was a predator trap and all these successive allosaurus that seemed to keep dying in the pit might have attracted more allosaurus. I'm not sure if anybody's looked at the Cleveland Lloyd quarry to see if there was any cannibalism. I tried searching for it, but whenever there's a new article that comes out, you get mostly those results. Maybe that's the next project. Yeah, I think it would be good to look at other quarries to see. Because in Cleveland Lloyd, yeah, you have a ton of allosaurus. They're all together there. It seems like One cause could be that an allosaurus or an animal died and then it attracted more allosaurus to the feast. Theory number five. Yeah. I mean, it's... Still a predator trap, I guess. Yeah. It's sort of like an asterisk maybe on one of the existing theories. And to that point, the authors did say that researchers may have overlooked other cannibalized bones because they're not as pretty and complete. And usually when you're out in the field, you can't bring back every bone that you find. So paleontologists will prioritize bones that they think they can get a lot of information out of or would look good in amount or are otherwise scientifically useful. So if they're complete, they're more useful because you can take more measurements and learn more from them. But in the cases like this where you're looking for behavior, it's better to have a more complete sample from a a quarry so that you can look at all the bones as a whole and see like 29% of them have these teeth marks on them. But if you're only collecting a few of the bones, <laughs> you know, you can't really make statements like that that are very useful. So hopefully in the future, we can collect more bones. That's always what we say. We need more fossils. But yeah, there's always that tension with not having enough storage space for them. Up next is an article all about why dinosaurs had long legs. It was written by T. Alexander Dekechi and others and published in PLOS One, just like the last article. Not sure if I mentioned that was in PLOS One. So traditionally, we've always said that dinosaurs had long legs because they wanted to run fast. 
And that's because we know that with a higher hip height, that means you can take longer steps and longer strides are useful in moving quickly. Just ask Sabrina. Snarky. <laughs> I always have to run to catch up to Garrett when we're walking somewhere. <laughs> yeah, especially if we're in a hurry. But fortunately for Sabrina, there are a lot of other factors in how fast you can move. It's not just about leg length. Oh, I know. There's also <laughs> geometry of the leg and muscle attachments that can have a big impact on speed. And another factor is the weight of the animal. In living animals, the fastest peak seems to be around 100 kilograms, 220 pounds. We've talked about that a little bit in the past. And when you go above that weight, there's a quote-unquote mass-limiting factor is how modern biologists describe it. So it's basically getting all that extra weight up to speed becomes really difficult. It's a lot of stress on joints and muscles and things like that. So getting up to 40, 50 miles an hour just becomes really impractical. So researchers found that with small to medium theropods, longer legs did allow dinosaurs to run faster. So basically up to that 100 kilogram mark, they were seeing, yeah, as they get heavier and they get their longer legs, it helps them run faster. But other factors like muscle attachment points also had a really big impact on how fast they could run. You know, just having a long leg doesn't necessarily mean you'd be fast. On the other hand, once you get above 100 kilograms or 200 kilograms, depends on where you draw the line, that mass limiting factor starts to really become a problem for large dinosaurs. And their added leg length didn't make them faster, but it did make them more efficient at walking. So this is especially true in tyrannosaurids, which we have heard a lot of people describe as very leggy. <laughs> They're very long legs for a theropod, especially one of that size. So it's been reported that they were probably really fast. That's one of the main schools of thought. But these researchers are saying, since it's, they're so heavy, I mean, they weigh many tons, they wouldn't have actually been that fast, but they would have been more efficient. And that's really important because as a tyrannosaurid, you have to eat a lot of food for every mile or so that you walk. And by increasing their efficiency, they think an individual T-Rex could reduce its meat intake by thousands of pounds a year. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that's like a full ceratopsian or something, all that meat. <laughs> the way they put it was that it would, quote, dramatically reduce the need to engage in the costly, dangerous, and time-consuming act of hunting, end quote, which I think is a pretty good summary for why you wouldn't want to hunt all the time if you could avoid it. Yeah, well, just looking at nature shows, it's a lot of energy it takes, and it is dangerous. Yeah, we know that T-Rex sparred with ceratopsians like triceratops once in a while because we've seen wounds on both of their faces from one another and therefore if you could avoid that if you could hunt one less a year you'd probably live a little longer so that strategy makes a lot of sense but they do caution that it's always hard to say if that's why they had long legs because adaptation doesn't follow like a logical path there's a lot of random stuff that happens so it might just be that they happen to have these more efficient legs that were used for something else. Like the longer legs might have also helped them be a little bit more nimble and agile. So they might have been able to turn quicker, which could be useful in hunting. And then on top of that, they got the added efficiency. In terms of modern animals, they drew an analogy to modern wolves, basically saying that they think tyrannosaurids and these other leggy, large theropods might have gone on long hunts, sort of following a pack 
of potential prey and then ending it with a short burst of speed to take down whatever individual they picked out of the herd. That also sounds tiring. <laughs> Are you tired? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm not built for hunting. Yeah. Well, it's actually kind of interesting because there's a tribe in Africa and the way that they hunt is basically by tiring out their prey because oh, yeah. being bipedal is more efficient than being quadrupedal. So they just follow an animal until it basically dies of exhaustion and then they carry it back. So yeah, bipedal is useful for efficiency. It's not great for high speed though, because especially if you compare us to any quadrupedal animals, we're always getting outrun by everything, mm -hmm. but we can run farther than a lot of them for longer. <laughs> so we got that going. We've got the endurance. <laughs> yep. Just not the speed, just like dinosaurs. Except dinosaurs might've been faster than us. Probably, yeah. Humans in general aren't really the most well-adapted for life out in the wild. It's okay. We learned how to make the tools. That's, that was our saving grace, yeah. We've got a whole bunch of short news items, so get ready. <laughs> Starting with in Queensland, Australia, a house builder and building inspector, Steve Ross, had recently finished his dinosaur metal sculptures, most recently three Australovenator dinosaurs. Australovenator? Depending who you ask. Yeah, that's <laughs> how you pronounce it. <laughs> he made them for a Livingston Shire Council on commission, and he used parts from landfills as well as pieces from friends and family like automotive parts, gym weights, parts of tractors. He said he spent more than 400 hours over six months building these juveniles. They look pretty cool. Nice. In Spring Hill, Florida, the Apatosaurus-shaped building, which I didn't know existed until this news item. But anyway, it's at 5299 Commercial Way. It's known as Dino or maybe Dino. It's nominated to be listed in the National Register of Historic Places. And it was originally a Sinclair gas station. So that explains the shape. And now it's a Harold's Auto Center. Harold Hearst bought the building in 1977. It still needs to be formally nominated to the keeper of the National Register in Washington, D.C. And then they'll make the final decision. Calling it a sauropod-shaped building. A potosaur-shaped building. Is, I'm looking at a picture of it. It is kind of a building, but it almost looks more like a sculpture that goes over a building. Yeah, it didn't really look like a building to me. But if it is a building, it makes sense because I think a potosaurus was the Sinclair, is the Sinclair mascot. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's not green, though. It's like white. Maybe it used to be green. It's true. If it had windows in it or something, it would look more like a building, but it's really just like a solid looking sculpture. It's definitely easy to find. That's <laughs> true. Speaking of easy to find things, in Drumheller, the world's largest dinosaur is getting repaired and painted in time for its 20th anniversary. It's going to cost about $300,000 to refurbish. and they, they already have the funds, though, through multiple funds. It's going to take them about three weeks to repair. It should be done by June 30th. What happened to it that it needs all that repair? It just every 10 or so years needs refurbishing, normal wear and tear. Okay. Because when we were there five years ago-ish, when we went up in it, mm -hmm. it seemed pretty good. That's because it had recently been repaired. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess those Canadian winters probably take a toll on it. Yeah. Plus, it's a very large building, lots of details. And it's kind of open if you think about where the jaw is. Yeah. I was just wondering if in the winter they close that off somehow or if the inside is subject to all those winter forces too. I don't know. In the UK, nurseries are working together to manage social distancing using their dinosaur, Wellasaurus. 
and they have dinosaur footprints to keep the kids standing apart from each other and dinosaurs at the nose wiping stations and hand washing areas. Basically, they're using dinosaurs to keep kids for washing their hands and staying six feet apart. I've never heard of a nose wiping station before. Me either. (laughs) What's going on in the UK? (laughs) Maybe it's so that you make sure you use tissues when you're wiping your nose or something. And then afterwards, wash your hands or something. Yeah. Interesting. Jurassic Quest has turned into a drive through experience, and there's an online audio tour that leads you through their safari. The first one's happening in San Antonio, Texas, and tours last between 30 minutes to an hour, so you can still get your Jurassic Quest fill. In other news, the Royal Mint released the Hylaeosaurus coin. Garrett, we're missing it now. Yeah, it takes a while to get here from the UK. I paid for the cheapest shipping. Oh, I didn't realize you already bought that one. Yeah, I bought the set. Oh, that's great. So this is the last of the Dinosauria collection. We've got Iguanodon and Megalosaurus, and it looks really good in the picture. It looks kind of like a proud Hylaeosaurus. Yeah, it's really cool. All of the coins, because it's the three that were used to name the group Dinosauria, have both a really cool and like nice modern reconstruction of the actual animal. And then on the bottom, they have the holotype material. Mm-hmm. In other news, maybe you saw this because the headlines were everywhere. There are now dinosaurs in space. (laughs) Specifically, the SpaceX astronauts brought Tremor, the dinosaur, which is uh, like a Beanie Baby dinosaur. And Tremor is an apatosaurus. It's blue and pink with these color-changing sequins. Oh, those are fun. Mm Mm-hmm. And they took Tremor on their successful mission to the International Space Station, On one post, I saw someone said it was, quote, the ultimate dad move. (laughs) So, like I said, Tremors and Apatosaurus, the toy is now sold out. But it looks like there's other toys in this line, like Stompy, which is probably a T-Rex. And both astronauts, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley, have kids, and their kids voted for them to bring Tremor to space with them. Bob and Doug are married to fellow astronauts. Really? Yeah. So Bob is married to Megan MacArthur and... Doug is married to Karen Nyberg, and apparently when Karen was in space in 2013, she made a stuffed dinosaur from scraps of fabric that she found around the space station for her son. Oh, that's way cooler. Yeah. She gets way more credit for actually making a dinosaur from found objects while in space (laughs) compared with just buying a beanie baby. (laughs) Well, still. (laughs) They still brought it to space, so that's something. I'm glad that now they've stopped bringing fossils into space. I'm pretty sure I mentioned in a fun fact that there have been several dinosaurs taken to space in like, you know, their unreplaceable holotype Mm, type quality. Don't do that. (laughs) Bring a cast. Yeah. Or just bring a stuffed animal. They're lightweight and it's all about (laughs) weight when you're going to space, right? That's true. No need to bring real fossils to space. Sounds like no one's doing that anymore. It's good. Next, thanks to Douglas who shared this one with us. So Chompers, it's a short podcast and an app, is doing a dinosaur week theme this week. The episodes are really short. They're about two minutes long. And the whole idea is to help kids brush their teeth with stories and educational talks. So if you've got young kids and you want them to learn about dinosaurs while brushing their teeth, Chompers is your app. Thanks to Michael, who shared this next one with us on Discord. So Discovery has a new series starting on Friday, June 19th, called Dino Hunters. And that's going to show ranchers and cowboys who find dinosaur fossils on their land in Wyoming, Montana, and the Dakotas. 
And also, Michael mentioned this one to us about PBS that has a new series that will air on June 17th and 24th and July 1st called Prehistoric Road Trip. Each episode is 60 minutes long and follows Emily Grassley, the Chicago Film Museum's chief curiosity officer. That's a cool title. <laughs> as she drives through and stops at fossil sites in the Dakotas in Montana, Wyoming, and Nebraska. Next, thanks to Eric, Paul, and Ricardo, who all shared this one with us on Patreon and Discord, Jurassic Park Terror has a post called Every Jurassic Park Dinosaur Illustrated with Modern Science. And it goes over the definition of a dinosaur, dinosaur anatomy, and how dinosaur hands and feet are often depicted differently in media, with, you know, the pronated hands and then the elephant-like feet. Yeah. Uh, dinosaur feathers, and then it goes into the Jurassic Park dinosaur profiles, which has images and descriptions of each, images of the updated versions. So they've got you know, Velociraptor slash Deinonychus, Triceratops, Stegosaurus, Parasaurolophus, a whole lot more. I'm guessing it's not every dinosaur. No, but it's a good amount. And it's not all the most popular ones from the movies. Oh, cool. And last thanks to Dennis, who shared this one with us via our Discord. So the next few Friday nights, Dustin Growick, who hosts the Dinosaur Show on YouTube, and we've interviewed him, will be hosting Friday night sessions of dinosaur parties for adults. And it's going to involve drawing paleo art and drinking. That's the adult part. <laughs> There's going to be themes for each night, so like June 26th is Jurassic Park as the theme. And other themes include mass extinction and dinosaur mating. It's an online event and tickets cost $7. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. <laughs> oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Labo Kania, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Discord and Patreon. So thanks. It was a theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in the Campanian in what is now Baja California, Mexico, in the La Bocana Roja Formation. It was carnivorous and probably medium-sized, about 20 feet or 6 meters long. Uh, Gregory Paul estimated in 2010 that it was 23 feet or 7 meters long and weighed 1.5 tons. 
Melina Perez and Laramendi estimated in 2016 that it was actually 27 feet or 8.2 meters long and weighed 2.6 tons. So the estimates keep getting bigger. Yeah, that's unusual. A lot of times they start out large and then shrink over time. Mm-hmm. Labokania had a robust head, and the teeth in the jawbone were flat and gradually recurved. The type species is Labokania anomala, and the genus name refers to the La Bocana Roja formation, the red estuary. The species name means anomalous in Latin and refers to its distinctive build. It was found in 1970 during a joint National Geographic Society and Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History expedition led by William Morris. Harley James Garbani, a volunteer on the expedition, is the one who found the fossils. And it was excavated in 1970 and 1971, and then described and named in 1974 by Ralph Molnar. The holotype is fragmentary, and it includes parts of the skull, teeth, part of the pubis, parts of the foot, and the chevron. The fossils were disarticulated and mixed with ribs from a hadrosauroidea dinosaur. Labocania is possibly a tyrannosaurid, but it's hard to tell from the fragments. Molnar assigned it as Theropoda incertae, and Thomas Holtz Jr. considered it a possible tyrannosauroid. There are a lot more tyrannosauroids than I would have thought before starting this podcast. Yes. And our fun fact of the day is that there are lots of animals that practice cannibalism, including herbivores. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Obviously, I got sent down this Erichtodromius burrow by the Allosaurus being a cannibal. <laughs> of course. <laughs> News item from before. Yeah. So I previously mentioned in another episode how there are very few, if any, pure herbivores. Like, for example, a cow or a deer will eat a small bird or a squirrel or something if it encounters it while it's grazing and just sort of munch it up like so it's kind of in the way yeah well not even in the way it'll go out of its way to eat it Mm. but it's not gonna be able to chase it down so it's got to be either injured or somehow completely unaware of this cow about to eat it it's an easy meal yes on the dinosaur side of things there's also hadrosaurs which we know ate rotting wood full of crustaceans probably to supplement their diet with extra calcium or something to that effect but speaking of cannibalism It's incredibly common in modern animals. So every combination of animals eating each other exists. You've got parents eating their young, which is called filial cannibalism or infanticide. Many animals will do this under the right circumstances. Often it's done if the young aren't in good shape or the parents can't raise them for other reasons. And they're basically recycling that generation to try again in a really gross way. In the first episode of Walking with Dinosaurs, they showed the mammal-like Dicynodonts doing this when they were getting terrorized by some Coelophysis. They ate their young and they ran off to try to basically try again. There's also young eating their parents. This is known as matrophagy because it's almost always they're eating the mom. You see this in some invertebrates, including a species of earwig that reproduces in the off-season when food is scarce. So the mom just becomes the food for the babies. Hmm. And obviously it's helpful because then they don't have to worry about as many predators because they're not timed with when most of the predators are looking for prey. There's also parents eating each other. (laughs) Usually it's the female eating the male, like the black widow spider. Apparently it's named the black widow spider because the female eats the male. But I couldn't find, I wanted to verify that, and I was trying to figure out when the first use of black widow was as a woman murdering her husband, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So anyway... 
just a, a rabbit hole that failed. But <laughs> some species of male actually climb into the female's fangs, whether or not she wants to eat him. Apparently, there's a type of fishing spider that does this. And presumably, they do it so that the female can better produce the eggs, which will give his offspring a better chance of surviving. Some species of spiders also eat each other if they find the mate unfit. This happens in some species with males eating the females as well. So if a female wanders by a male and the male's like, that female is too old to raise good young or is too small, he'll just eat her. And females do the same thing. Spiders are harsh. Yeah, there's other species that do this too, but I think spiders must be one of the easier ones to study. And I think there's a pretty broad spectrum of them. Is this why so many people are afraid of spiders? Because we know these things about them? <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's more their venomous bites. Mm. But yeah, it doesn't help. There's also young or parents eating eggs, which is called oophagy. Sometimes that term is used as intrauterine cannibalism, but I think embryophagy is a better term for that because it makes more sense. But birds all the time eat their own eggs. Sometimes the eggs are just too tempting for them if they're hungry or for whatever reason the mood strikes. And then tiger sharks are really famous for embryophagy because what will happen is one of the tiger shark pups, while it's still in utero, will eat its siblings. And then obviously that one comes out well-fed and better prepared to take on the world. And then last is there's individuals eating other individuals that have died, which is called necrophagy. And that fits really naturally with scavenger behavior of a lot of animals. And it's an especially good way to spread disease mm. because if an animal dies of disease and then another animal eats it, it's likely to catch that disease. So yeah, not a really well-advised one. Are any of these? I think so. They, they work well for a lot of animals. Hmm. But many of the strategies don't work well for mammals. Our offspring tend to be large, so they're not bite size. <laughs> they rely on the mother for milk, so they can't eat the mom. And then milk also means that they don't need to eat each other because they all can get milk from the mom at the same time in most cases. Most of the mammal cannibalism out there is infanticide which was how it was depicted in Walking with Dinosaurs. But on the other hand, dinosaurs don't have these same limitations. There's a good chance that there was a lot of these types of cannibalism happening with dinosaurs. As another example, showing that it's not just spiders, even the world-friendly turtles that everybody loves are cannibals if they get the chance. No, oh, they deserve to get stomped by the sauropods. <laughs> I didn't expect you to go there. That, that's funny. Maybe the sauropods were intervening, like a turtle was about to cannibalize another turtle. <laughs> so I was like, no, put a stop to that. It could be the case because there are photos and videos of adult turtles eating baby turtles and turtles are omnivorous. So that's not too surprising, but cannibalism is very common in the water. You probably know this if you have a fish tank because lots of fish are carnivorous. They basically mostly eat other fish and the rule of thumb, if you have a fish tank, is if something fits inside a fish's mouth, it's probably going to try to eat it. We've seen this firsthand. Yes. Whether it's its own babies, if it's another fish, if it's another of the same species. If it's its own poop. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's going to try to eat it. If it can fit in its mouth, why not? Just back to the turtles real quick. Uh, just want to mention to our listeners who might be new, this has been an ongoing debate <laughs> between me and Garrett, and it's actually carried over into our Discord as well. So. Yes. <laughs> This is not out of the blue. <laughs> there have been 
hypotheses thrown out there that sauropods were so large that they could step on and squish a tortoise or a turtle and then eat its delicious gooey insides. Right. For the protein. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, back to your cannibalism fun fact. Yeah. So another example is that hippos have been seen at least twice practicing cannibalism. Oh, that must be a scary sight. Well, it's weird because hippos barely have teeth. They have those tusks in the front of their mouth and stuff, so it's not an easy move. Right. But they're so aggressive. Yes. And the more recent picture has a bunch of crocodiles in the background, so they're not even messing with the hippo eating the other hippo. So, yeah, it shows you how tough the hippos are. And then with modern dinosaurs, also known as birds, I mentioned oophagy, and chickens and other birds sometimes eat their own eggs pretty frequently. There's also sometimes infighting, which progresses into cannibalism. If you think about the so-called pecking order, as they're pecking at each other, trying to establish which one is the dominant chicken or other dinosaur, sometimes they just keep going until one of them dies and then end up eating that one. It's pretty intense. They also sometimes commit cannibalism if they're low on a nutrient, which they can get by eating another of their same species. In dinosaurs, there's no evidence of herbivorous dinosaur cannibalism yet, because I think we're going to find it. (laughs) I just don't know how yet. I think the main reason we haven't seen it yet is because herbivorous dinosaurs do not have good teeth for making those striated marks on bones. Most of them don't have serrated teeth, and the ones that do aren't really strong enough, and I don't think they would be very good at removing flesh from bones. What the ones with the dental batteries? Yeah, I mean, that's going to leave a totally different kind of mark, if anything. Mm. It's kind of just like a grinding surface, so I don't know. But we might be able to see it on a microscope. The main reason I think this is almost certainly happening is that baby dinosaurs are bite-sized, even for herbivores. So I'm pretty sure that a sauropod, if it saw another sauropod baby, would probably chomp it down. And I think the best chance, therefore is probably finding microfossils in gut contents Mm. or maybe in a coprolite from a baby of the same genus as the one that ate it. Interesting. Just point the blame at the sauropods. (laughs) Well, there's plenty of blame to be placed already at some of the theropods because famously Majungasaurus from Madagascar, I think, was the first cannibal dinosaur that was known. And then there's T-Rex and now Allosaurus slash Ceratosaurus have been confirmed as well. So lots of cannibals going around. Deinonychus and Coelophysis have been suspected of cannibalism, but that's gone back and forth a little bit, so we're not totally sure if they were cannibals. Probably, though. I just assume after reading all the stuff about cannibalism, it seems like everything is a cannibal. (laughs) (laughs) Under the right circumstances. Yeah, one of those types of cannibalism. They might not have done it as adults to other adults, but they were probably at least on occasion eating the young because it seems like just every animal does that all the time. I'm glad we have a well-stocked fridge, Garrett. (laughs) Humans very rarely go into cannibalism. If you make it past that early childhood, right, most (laughs) mammals don't do cannibalism. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, join our growing community on Patreon, patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time.